That third verse says, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. John chapter 6. One of the... um, One of the greatest theologians in American history, uh, a pastor who was instrumental in leading the the Great Awakening, whose most famous sermon is still read in literature courses on college campuses and even, even in some high school literature classes. He was fired by his church in Massachusetts because of his view on, on who should participate in the Lord's Supper. And so the Lord's Supper, or communion, has been the subject of much controversy all throughout church history, even in the New Testament itself. We can find disputes over the church in this issue. And for example, in, um, the Apostle Paul wrote in his first letter to the church at Corinth, uh, when he was writing this letter, he reminded the Corinthian Christians how they should be observing communion, and he tells us that his instructions come directly from Christ himself chapter 11 there, 1 Corinthians. But the controversy that surrounds the communion table, um, it didn't end in Corinth. During the Reformation, there was a significant, a significant rift that developed between the churches in Germany, which were led uh, pretty much under the leadership of Martin Luther. The churches in the various cities of Switzerland, especially Zurich, Their main influence was another reformer, Ulrich Zwingli. And so in in the year 1529, in order to bring these these two reformed, uh, the the reformed churches of Switzerland together with like-minded churches in Germany, church leaders, they held a conference at the Marburg Castle in Germany. A number of theological issues were discussed at this conference, and the most controversial was that of the Lord's Supper, and that was saved to last. Well, of course, the Reformers, they disagreed with the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation, which is the idea that the elements or the the substances of the supper, the the cup and and the bread, they literally became the body and blood of Christ. All of the Reformers rejected this view that, incidentally, is still held by the Roman Catholic Church today. Martin Luther held to a view that he called the real presence. He believed that the body and blood of Christ uh, was was dwelling or existing in and and under and with the elements. Sometimes this view is called consubstantiation, which Luther didn't like that term. Ulrich Zwingli held to a different view. Theologians have come to call the Zwingli's view the memorial view. So he held that the elements of the Lord's table are merely symbols. The bread is a symbol of the Lord's body, and the cup is a a symbol of Christ's shed blood for the remission of sins. And at this conference, these two great reformers, um, they could not come to an agreement over the Lord's Supper. At one point during the debate, Luther, who kind of always had a flair for the dramatic, he had snuck in and written in chalk on the table, 
covered it with a tablecloth so that while he was speaking, he could rip the tablecloth off and see written on the table the words, this is my body. And he declared that we must interpret this phrase literally. The bread is the body of Christ. Zwingli shot back that it all depends on what your definition of is is. In this case, is means signifies, stands in the place of, which allows for a symbolic understanding of the bread. And he referred to John chapter 6, verse 63, where Jesus says, it is the spirit that gives life, the flesh is no help at all. Essentially, Essentially, Zwingli here made the case that communion was merely a a memorial meal. The focus should be to remember the sacrifice of Christ and nothing more. He was very proud of himself for taking on the great Martin Luther. He boasted that his argument was so good it would break Luther's neck. And so they left the, the Marburg Castle there in Germany. They left, they went their separate ways. And unity over the issue of the Lord's Supper never came to churches of the Reformation. And it still divides many Protestant churches today. But then a few centuries later, debate over the supper came up again, this time in Massachusetts, Northampton, Massachusetts, 1740s, 1750s. The controversy ended there at that church with Jonathan Edwards being fired from his congregation. Edwards' predecessor, the man he replaced as pastor there, was a man by the name of Solomon Stoddard. It actually was his grandfather. He believed that the Lord's Supper should be, should be open to all. Anyone who would come to the table should be able to partake. At one point, he even called it a converting ordinance. He said that the, the Lord's Supper, in the Lord's Supper, the grace of Christ is made available. So perhaps, perhaps an unconverted person may come to the faith by partaking in the bread and cup. But Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, rightly saw this unbiblical belief and practice, uh, he saw it as being unbiblical and one that he would not preside over at the church there at Northampton. And this put him at odds with the leadership of his own church and resulted in him ultimately being fired. So there's a little bit of history for you this morning. We're going to be looking today at John chapter 6. We're going to be beginning this section, what is traditionally called the Bread of Life Discourse, beginning at 22. We're going to stop this morning at 34, but it really goes through um, really the end of the chapter. This is tied to Jesus' his, his discourse, his teaching here is, is tied to Jesus' later teaching on communion. And you can see that as we go through this. But as we begin, we need to be aware that Many Christians have interpreted this passage, really this one, and we will look at the rest of it next week. They've interpreted all of this uh, as sacramental, that the bread and the cup of communion is a, is a manifestation of the body and blood of Christ. And, and as I said, Roman Catholics hold this view, and, and Luther kind of held a form of this view. But as Protestant Christians... Even as Christians with our roots really in the Reformation and and beyond, we can see Jesus' words in this chapter as a a metaphor. And so we can see the supper as as an ordinary means of grace. As Christ has said, do this in remembrance of me. But we don't see communion as, the big word is efficacious or effective for salvation. It doesn't save us. 
The bread of the Lord's Supper does not infuse us with grace. It reminds us that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And so we have to keep that phrase, and really verse 35 of John chapter 6, in our minds, kind of be looking at it out of the corner of our eyes as we work through this passage. So John 6, 35, again, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Well, let's start verse, in verse 22. Let me read this passage, John 6, verse 22. But keep that phrase in verse 35 in your mind. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Let's just pray one more time. Lord, I must decrease and Christ must increase. Help us to see Christ today, Lord, to see who he is for who he is, bread of life. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The Beatles. The Beatles sang, you say you want a revolution? Well, you know, we all want to change the world. That idea has been going on, been going around for thousands of years. The multitudes will rise up in rebellion and revolution. They all want to change the world. Same was true in Jesus' day uh, with this crowd that's been following him around. And as we look at this passage, I want you to see this morning four elements here in these verses that, that push us toward the statement that, that he makes in verse 35, that he is the bread of life. So let me give you these four elements right now. These things push us toward the statement that he makes in verse 35. The first one is that they were seeking Jesus. They were seeking Jesus. It's verses 22 to 25. That pushes us toward the statement that he is the bread of life. And then he says that he has food that endures. So they're seeking Jesus. He has food that endures. That's verses 26 and 27. Then we see discussion about the work of God, verses 28 and 29. 
And then finally, he begins to reveal that he is the bread from heaven, verses 30 to 34. So they're seeking Jesus. He talks about food that endures the work of God and then bread from heaven. So this crowd here is seeking Jesus. Look again at verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread and after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. We have to remember that, that this crowd, this group of people, at least the majority of those who are there, had witnessed, and actually they had even been fed to their satisfaction by Jesus miraculously with five barley loaves and two fishes. They, they did not witness him walking on the Sea of Galilee. That was really only for his disciples. In fact, they apparently, from these verses, they never even saw him leave. But evidently, they did realize that the disciples had gone. But this is the same crowd that had witnessed and had even tasted, eaten of the bread. Obviously, they had, they had seen the 12 baskets of leftovers that the disciples had gathered up. Now, these verses, um, as John writes them in, in Greek, the sequence of events is kind of hard to follow. Even as we read it in English, the, the various English translations have kind of smoothed it out some. They've kind of cleaned it up a little bit to make it a little bit easier, but it still is a little awkward reading. I think the simple point here in these verses is that the crowds are scrambling to find Jesus. More boats are arriving all the time from as far away as the city of Tiberias, which is on the, on the southwest corner of the lake. John specifically connects this passage and these events with the first 15 verses, the feeding of the 5,000. He does so when he makes this statement in verse 23, when he says, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. They're looking for him there. They're arriving from across the lake, across the sea, looking for Jesus. And this connection here between the bread, uh, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and this section, it shouldn't be missed. And so, as I said, the crowd that was, really, this is the same crowd that had tried, or at least was about to, verse 15 tells us, that were about to force him to, to become king. They're now gaining reinforcements more people are showing up. This crowd of about 5,000 men, as it said previously, uh, 5, 000, maybe 5,000 families, something like that, this massive crowd of people is growing, and, and now they're headed toward Capernaum looking for Jesus. They're trying to find him, seeking him. This crowd of, this is a crowd of seekers. The Bible even says that. They're seeking Jesus. They are seeking Jesus, but they're seeking the wrong king. They're seeking Jesus for their own motives. Many Jewish people during Jesus' day were very, they were very nationalistic. It, it had been nearly 500 years since they had been a, an independent nation. They believed that they had a, a divine right to their own independence, but one empire after another 
had occupied their promised land and, for example, had made them pay steep taxes, had oppressed them, made them care for and provide for the troops that were there. They had kept them in suppression. And so a rebellion or a revolution was always kind of percolating just under the surface. There had been some serious ones in the time between the Old and New Testament. Um, For many of what we would call today kind of the the disenfranchised people, uh, for many of those types of people, Jesus' miracles really scratched their itch. He was just what they were looking for. And so when they saw that, that not only could he heal the sick, we see that earlier in chapter 6, they're following him because he's healing the sick. Not only could he heal the sick, but he could also feed them from just, a, just, a, just one little boy's lunch. He could feed multitudes of people. Well, they were ready right then when they saw those things. They were ready right then and there to make him a king who would be, be just like Moses was so many centuries earlier, leading them to freedom, overthrowing the evil Roman Empire, and kicking them out of their promised land, and being their king again. And so like a, like a good seeker-sensitive preacher, Jesus left them there. He went away. They didn't know where he went. They were in confusion. And, th- and this is the point. And the point is that not everybody is really seeking Jesus. Not everybody is really seeking Jesus. They, they're seeking a Jesus that, they, that is so small. The disciples found him, though. Back in chapter 1, verses 40 and 41, l- listen to this. Chapter 1, verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak, and that is John the Baptist, and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And then in verse 45, we read about Philip, who found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. But the difference, the difference between the disciples looking for Jesus and finding him and these crowds who were seeking Jesus, the difference here is that the disciples were looking for him in the Bible. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The end of this chapter will begin to make clear those differences between the disciples and the crowds here who were seeking Jesus. And so we'll come back to that, Lord willing, next week next week or two. John here, really is what he is doing, is beginning to set up the dialogue which is really centered on this notion of seeking Jesus. So for the crowds, it was, it was who they believe Jesus represents. For the crowds, Jesus represents independence and freedom from Rome versus who Jesus really is. And already John is setting up this dichotomy between the true disciples between Jesus' true disciples and the crowds. Notice verse 23. He calls him a name. He calls him the Lord. Now he's writing this many years after these things take place. He's, he's writing this down later, but this is no mistake. This is the first time in John's gospel that he refers to Jesus as the Lord. 
John is working here to to lay the foundation for what true discipleship really is, for what salvation entails. Namely, it is understanding who Jesus really is. And John very subtly throws down the gauntlet there in verse 23 when he calls Jesus the Lord. See, in verse 25, the crowds address him as rabbi as they ask him a simple question that kind of kind of betrays their ignorance and and confusion as to who he is. They still seem to be plotting to make him king. They don't understand what has really happened, who he really is to them. He's just another rabbi. And the fact that they're following him, Jesus calls them out and says that it's merely motivated by their their hunger, and and we can see by political desire. And remember, this, this is a huge crowd. The pressure is on for Jesus. Rabbi, when did you come here? Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus, in answering their question in his kind of typical way, he calls them out and he points out their true motives while also steering the conversation to the gospel and explaining to them this food that endures food that endures. Look again at verse 26 and 7. Jesus answered them, truly, I, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Jesus calls their bluff here. He calls their spiritual bluff. The source of their seeking, the source, the reason that they're searching for him, that they're seeking Jesus, is not repentant hearts. They're not filled with gratitude at finding the one whom whom Moses and the prophets wrote about. The, The source of their seeking is their empty stomachs. And Jesus doesn't answer their question. How did you get here, Rabbi? He doesn't answer their question. I should say he will answer their question, but it's going to be in a way that that they don't expect. It's going to be in a way that they don't understand. But what was the answer to their question? The answer was what he he should have said, what they were expecting him to say, or really what we should expect him to say was, I walked. That's how I got here. I walked. That's That's what they expected. They didn't expect him to say, I walked. They expected him to say something about having a secret boat that they didn't know about, or somebody smuggled me out, or how did you get here? He walked. Would they have believed him if he had said that? At this point, it doesn't matter because he's going straight for their motives. They saw the signs, Jesus said, but they they misinterpreted them. Look again, back in verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving them that they were, they were uh, about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What they said was, he's the prophet, let's make him, let's make him the king. But what they should have said was, he's the prophet, could this also be the promised king? Could this also be the promised king? 
There's a crucial distinction there. God had covenanted with King David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We call it the Davidic covenant. Part of that reads like this. He says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, whom shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. They should have been searching the scriptures to see if this was he of whom the prophets wrote about. That's what the disciples had been doing. At least Philip says that to Nathaniel. We have found he whom the, Moses and the prophets wrote about. But not only did Jesus call their bluff, not only did he tell them directly that they had missed the sign, even though they saw the sign, but he also points out their continued mistake, and he preaches them the truth. Again, look at verse 27 again. Do not uh, work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Now, <clears throat> this is a packed verse. Jesus says a ton here. What the crowd didn't understand when they saw the sign was the, when they saw the, the sign of the feeding of the 5,000, what they didn't understand when they saw that was the distinction between the, the temporary and the eternal. Food that perishes and food that endures to eternal life. Of course, Jesus is still speaking kind of in, in metaphors here. He's speaking of the distinction between the Jesus that they wanted and the reality of who Jesus was or who he is, which is the only son from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus is rebuking them here for serving the God of their own stomachs. Paul will warn the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 to 20, he will say this, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That verse describes these people. It describes them to a T. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. This is, that, this is the same dichotomy. This is the dichotomy that he's talking about here. There is a, there is a food that endures. Now, <clears throat> another thing I should point out in verse 27, when Jesus says work in this verse, he is not advocating a works salvation. So, so look at this again, because he says it once, and then it's implied once. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for, there's where it's implied, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of God will give to you, or the Son of Man will give to you. What he's saying to these people is this. You have rowed your boats all over Galilee to find a, a meal to find a dinner when you should be applying yourself to the food that matters. When you should be applying yourself essentially to search the scriptures to see if the things that I'm saying are true. To see if it's me that the scriptures are pointing to. 
Even, even here, even in this, he's still speaking in metaphors. He's getting closer to being explicit. He will be explicit further on. He's getting a little bit closer here when he tells him that this enduring food will be given by the Son of Man. But we need to hang on there because Jesus tells them to, to work for. He tells them to earnestly pursue, really, that which leads to eternal, eternal life, which he will give to them. So, with your eye on verse 35, and we're getting closer, what do we know Jesus to be saying? He's saying, pursue Christ, or even seek Christ, and he will remove your spiritual hunger and your thirst, and he will grant to you eternal life. This is salvation. This is Christ coming on the scene for the first time in the gospel according to Mark. In his first words in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, he proclaims, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So, so this is, is this a work? That's the question. Is this a work? Is there something we must do? Repent and believe read this earlier, but back in chapter 1, when the disciples proclaim that they have found Christ, listen to verses 43 and uh, 44 and 45 again. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. But did you catch that? It said right at the beginning that he found Philip. And then Philip said, I found the Christ. D.G. Barnhouse, Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was a famous American Bible teacher in the early to mid-1900s. He often used this illustration in his teaching to help people to make sense of this whole idea of who found who. He would ask his students to imagine a cross like on, on which, like the one that Jesus died. Imagine a cross. Only this cross is so large that it has a door in it. And over the door are written the words, Barnhouse would say, from the book of Revelation. Those words are, Whoever, whosoever will may come. Whosoever will may come. He would explain that these words represent the, the free and universal offer of the gospel. By God's grace, the message of salvation is for everyone. Whosoever will may come. Every man, every woman, every child who will come to the cross is invited to believe in Jesus Christ and enter into eternal life. Barnhouse would then explain that on the other side of the door, once you walk through that door, there's a happy surprise, he said, that awaits everyone who believes and enters. From the inside, anyone glancing back at the, at the door would see the words from Ephesians chapter 1 written above the door, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Scripture says that Jesus found Philip, and Philip went to Nathanael and proclaimed, we have found him. He says, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Which the Son of Man will give to you. And then he confirms this with this statement. He says, for on him, <coughs> excuse me, for on him the Father has set his seal. 
at the end of verse 27. On him the Father has set his seal. And when he says this, he actually begins to answer their question kind of in a, in a deeper way than they really asked. Rabbi, when did you come here? He walked. But really there's so much more to it than that. The seal in verse 27 is the Father's stamp. It is his proof of ownership, so to speak. This kind of language is used elsewhere in Scripture too. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1. In verses 13 and 14, we read this. In Him you also, that is Christ, in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. We also know that John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, has testified in John chapter 1, verses 32 to 34. He says, John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and am bore witness that this is the Son of God. What this means is that Jesus has been sent and authorized by God the Father to bring the food that leads to eternal life. Rabbi, when did you come here? That's not really the question, is it? The question really is, why did you come here? Why did you come here? Jesus has been sent by God the Father to bring the food that leads to eternal life. And this is the work of God, he says. The work of God. Look at verse 28. 28 and 29. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This crowd continues to miss the point. They've missed the point. And they're continuing to miss the point. But Christ continues to steer them back to the gospel, making it, making it really clearer each time. See, they, they picked up on this idea of works. What must we do to be doing the work of God? Or the works of God. And, and it's plural, works. These are, these are Jewish people, by and large. They expect him to answer with, do the works of the law. This is a common response, isn't it? What must I do? I would say it's actually common to all of humanity, not just Jewish people. But listen to Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 22. Just listen to this passage. Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life... Keep the commandments. He said, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus answered him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, as I said, that guy, 
the rich young ruler we sometimes call him. He happened to be Jewish, but I don't think this is so far off from the rest of us. Because so many modern Americans believe that we get into heaven by being a good person, by doing good deeds. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, look at this passage again, here in, in these a couple of verses. Jesus had made, has made now three bold claims just in these verses. 28, they said to him, what must we do uh, to be doing the works of God? Look at Jesus' response. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. He makes three bold claims here. The first thing he says, it's actually in verse 27, he calls himself the son of man. Jesus calls himself the son of man. Biblically speaking, this is a big deal. Because this is the fulfillment of a prophecy from Daniel. Now, we don't have time to go into that this morning. But these Jewish people should have been looking for a Messiah who was the Son of Man. Then he has said, second thing, second kind of bold statement that he makes. He said that the Father has placed his seal on him. This really should have stood out to them. Should have caused some red flags to go off. What does that mean? And then the third bold statement is he claimed to be able to provide eternal life. Yet they don't ask him about those things. They don't ask him about those things. They ask him what they need to do. Their biggest problem is our biggest problem. They're focused on themselves. They're focused on their works, on what they must do, and, and not, on, not on his work, not on what he has done. Jesus has just declared who he is, what he can do, and all they can think about is themselves and, and what they can do. And yet, in his mercy, he answers them. Verse 29 again. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him on whom he has sent. Did you catch that? Work is singular. They ask him about works, plural. And he answers them, work, singular. What must, we, what must we do to be doing the works of God? One thing, Jesus says, and this is the work of God. Believe in him on whom he has sent. Your belief in Christ is the work of God, he says. This is the work of God. Believe in him who he has sent. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. I just want to point out that believe there, it's in the present tense. Keep on believing. Continually believe. It's not, a, it's not an act of faith that saves you. There is a moment of conversion, but it's not an act of faith that saves you. It's a life of faith. That's what Jesus is talking about. Believe, 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 keep on believing. They should have stopped right there. They should have, they should have pondered those things in their hearts. They should have gone and searched the scriptures to see if those things that he had just said to them were true. But they didn't. Instead, they ask him, <clears throat> they ask him to reveal again who he was. And in so doing, they reveal really their own ignorance and their hardened heart. 
And so he has to explain this bread from heaven. Look in verse 30. So they said to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. The crowd is challenging him. They're challenging Jesus. Verses 30 and 31 are not, they're not really kind of symptoms of their interest in him. They've actually, they're actually starting to get a little bit upset. And so they decide to use scripture to argue with Jesus. And let me just say this is probably a bad move on their part. To use the Bible to argue with God. It's probably a bad move. Really, this is the dumbest thing that they could have said. They've just witnessed the feeding of the 5,000. Plus, verse 2 tells us that they were following him all along because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They've had plenty of signs, and here they are asking him for another. They've had plenty of signs. This is, on, this is uh, really kind of par for the course for the Jewish people. <clears throat> In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Verses 22 and 23, we read that the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But they continue to challenge him. They continue to challenge him by, by bringing up one of, the, one of the signs of Moses there in verse 31. They're directly challenging him to feed them from above like Moses did. You think you're as good as Moses? Then feed us like Moses did. He's already fed them with perishable food from below, a little boy's lunch. Give us some of this food from above. Give us food from heaven like Moses did. And Jesus answers their their challenge by correcting them again. He tells them that the manna from heaven was actually from the Father. It was not from Moses. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. God has provided for them something so much better than manna. He says God has sent his Son. Jesus is bread from heaven, bread that gives life to the world. You're going to leave here in the next few minutes, maybe the next half hour. You'll be getting in your cars and you'll be driving home. Um, and the, one of the first things that you're going to do is you're going to want to find something to eat. You're going to want to find some bread. Eating is necessary. Eating is good. We rejoice when we eat, right? People... We can't just admire our food. We can't just take a picture of it and post it online for all the world to admire and then not eat of it, right? You have to actually eat it in order for it to be any good. And if you want eternal life, eating is necessary. This is what Jesus is saying. You can't just come. You can't just admire the bread. People do this all the time. They say, oh yeah, I have lots of respect for Jesus. Jesus was such a good teacher. I want to tell you, and I would argue with you, Jesus is probably not a good teacher in the way that we would judge good teachers. He left them on the other side of the lake and they had to go find him. He's not good at building a crowd. 
as far as the worldly standards are. We have to actually eat this bread. We can't just come and admire him. We have to eat. We have to believe is what we're really saying. Some of us are hungry right now. Our stomachs are, are grumbling, right? Um, eating is the right response to hunger. So the people who eat are the people who are hungry. Is your heart hungry for the bread of life? Are we hungry for who Jesus really is? Are you hungry for Christ and for his righteousness? If so, I have good news. I'm going to leave you this morning with one promise. And we will pick this up next week. The promise is this. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, filled. If Jesus is the bread of life, our only satisfaction can come through him by being filled with him. So I hope you're hungry. Let's pray. God, I pray that we are hungry. I pray that we are hungering and thirsting for your righteousness. And Lord, this promise, the promise that Christ lays out that we would be satisfied, that whosoever will may come to him, and he would satisfy our hunger and thirst. Lord, we long for the day when we can eat that final meal and be completely satisfied. The marriage supper of the Lamb. When we can be satisfied to be in the presence, the very presence of Jesus Christ, rejoicing, having a meal, spending an eternity with him. And until that day, Lord, I pray that we would continue to hunger and thirst for righteousness and to search his word, to search your word, that we may be satisfied with Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.